1: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com
2: and live the chumba life. No purchase
1: necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in
0: lots of places, but nowhere is important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new
3: podcast, Face Off, U.S. vs. China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. In the winter of 1637, in the city of Grenoble in the French Alps, Magdalene Elvomont gave birth to a son, a healthy baby boy named Emmanuel. Strike up the banners, beat the drum, Magdalene's husband, the Lord of Aguamare, Jerome de Montléon, must have been overjoyed. Or would become overjoyed when he returned from Germany, where he was serving as a cavalry captain. And had been. For the last four years. It was an awkward set of facts for Magdalene, as well as for Jerome's brothers, Adrien de la Forge and Lord Charles of Bourglemont, who promptly took Magdalene to court to have her child officially bastardized. Must have seemed like an open and shut case. I mean... It might have been better if they knew who the father actually was, but surely they knew who the father couldn't be, and that was Jerome, their brother and Magdalene's husband. Under what scenario could Jerome have fathered a child with his wife when he was hundreds of miles away for several years? Well, Magdalene provided one. She explained that she had been pure and chaste throughout her husband's long absence, but that one night in the early summer, she had left the western window to her bedroom open, fallen asleep, and dreamed of Jerome. In her dream, he had returned from war, and in her dream, she had welcomed him back in the wifely way. The dream was as convincing and as satisfying, if you get me, as the real thing. And when Magdalene awoke in the morning, she found her sheets all shuffled, her limbs akimbo, and the feeling of true conception deep within her womb. It's difficult, from where I'm sitting, to make complete sense of Magdalene's claim, in that it's not clear to me what she was naming as the activating agent of her pregnancy. Was the court to believe that Jerome had somehow... Visited her in spirit form and fathered Emmanuel ethereally? Or was the child formed from her immaculate imaginings alone? With all the emphasis her account awkwardly put on the west wind or zephyr, there seems to be some insinuation that maybe the air itself played a part? At any rate, obviously nobody was going to buy this story. Not on its own. But lucky for Magdalene, she had witnesses. Not to the event itself, I don't mean that. Magdalene's witnesses were more like experts. Four were doctors from the University of Montpelier, and four were local midwives, all of whom testified that the conception Magdalene described was possible. I don't know what that testimony was based upon, because it's not in the record, but theirs was probably not the most compelling anyway. Three more witnesses stood up and swore testimony in support of Magdalene. They were, according to the report, Lady Elizabeth de Elberche, the wife of Sir Louis of Pontrenal, Lady Louise de Nicard, wife of Charles de Esquire, and Marie de Saul, wife of Louis Grandsalt. Sir Louis and Charles d'Albret were both abroad too, and Louis had died there. Yet, Elizabeth, Louise, and Marie had become pregnant in their absences via windy dreams exactly the same way as Magdalene. Huh, what a coincidence! All things considered, concluded the Parliament of Grenoble, the court, having regard to the affirmations, certificates, and attributions of the said women and doctors named, has ruled and dismissed said De La Forge and Bourglemont of their request orders that the said Emmanuel is and will be declared the legitimate son, true heir of the said Lord of Aguimère, and, in doing so, the said court condemns the said Sirs de la Forge and burglemont to consider that said de Vermont to be a good woman of honor of which they will give formal notice. That's right, not only was the case dismissed and Emmanuel named Jerome's legitimate heir, but Adrian and Charles had to publicly apologize for doubting Magdalene's honor and officially affirm her high character. Not only was it possible to get pregnant in a dream, but it was so obviously possible, so commonplace apparently at that exact moment in Grenoble, that the court had to take action against the brothers for ever doubting it. And if you're wondering how any of this could have possibly happened, you aren't alone! For reasons too nakedly obvious to mention, the story of Magdalene de Obermont and her dream baby, Emmanuel, flew fast and far around the whole of France and eventually beyond. The next year, piqued or disturbed by the tale, the French Parliament officially took up the question of whether this story was true. They quickly ruled to the contrary. The names of mother and son must have been joking and blasphemous references to Mary and Jesus and to the prophecy of the Messiah's birth in the book of Isaiah. Not to mention that the record of Grenoble gave the date of the trial as February 13th, which was Carnival. The whole thing must have been a drunken prank, Parliament concluded, and they prohibited the story and ordered all pamphlets containing it destroyed. And I... I'm at least 90% sure that they were right. None of the names of the wives, the husbands, or the doctors appear anywhere else that I can find in the historical record. For the most part, even their titles appear to be phony. But if Magdalene was a joke, it's clear that not everybody got the punchline. And if Parliament meant to suppress the story, they very much failed. For centuries to come, the case of Magdalene and Emmanuel was repeated in medical books both popular and academic. And numerous physicians and professors, debating and considering just how and where babies come about, cited the story as a complication or affirmation of their theories. It is, after all, among the most vexing mysteries humanity has ever faced. And it's one that constantly faced back, staring unblinkingly into the eyes of people everywhere. Before death or even taxes, birth is the surest guarantee in life yet its mechanisms were inscrutable. We've covered the millennia-long search for understanding of this subject before, but for today, we're going to look at some more stories like Magdalene's. Stories that saw a gaping hole in our knowledge of childbirth and sought to fill them with hoaxes, lies, and pranks. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. This week's episode, whoa, baby. What are you waiting for? Get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. Fuel up fast with Factors' restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. It's a perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. And it's flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. I love these things. I had a pesto pork last night. It was delicious. It comes from one of those little containers that looks like it's going to be a Swanson TV dinner, and you won't believe the quality that comes out of that in just two minutes. Head to factormeals.com slash constant50 and use code constant50 to get 50% off. That's code constant50 at factormeals.com slash constant50 to get 50% off. john hill was one of 18th century london's smartest most prodigious most impressive thinkers he was also one of its biggest assholes to fully understand who john hill was Well, honestly, I'm not entirely sure that's possible. But if it were, it would certainly take a lot more time than we have here. He wrote more and on more subjects than potentially anybody ever. I know that's a big claim, but I'm not the first person to make it. And if there's somebody else who could claim the prize from him, I don't know who it would be. He wrote plays, poems, essays, guidebooks, instructional manuals, mathematics treatises, books on botany, taxonomy, animal husbandry, astronomy, geology, mineralogy, chemistry, medicine, microscopy, journalism, acting, philosophy, theology, herbalism, home ec, and so much more. He even authored a popular cookbook. And don't misunderstand, most of these writings They're legit. He made a lot of important insights and discoveries. Not that you'd know that by reading most accounts of his life, because everyone around John Hill hated him so much that they were sure he was full of shit. They wrote decisively about how full of shit he was. And for the centuries that followed, most people assumed that was true. Let me give you an example. So John Hill was born in 1714. We don't know for sure where, probably near Cambridgeshire, and we don't know much else about his early life. We know his dad was a parish pastor, and we can be pretty sure John didn't receive any formal education outside of grammar school. Which is pretty wild, considering his skills as a writer and his deep knowledge of, uh, every topic of human inquiry. But anyway, he gets his professional start as an apothecary. He apprentices for a couple of years, learning the trade, which is mostly about producing herbal remedies of little actual use, before setting out on his own and pitching a shop in Westminster. For some reason, his apothecary shop doesn't sustain him for long. Most sources say that it simply wasn't making enough money, but I have a feeling that money was less of an issue than ambition, that John Hill wanted a career with a little more pizzazz. So for a little while, he tried to get into botany traveling around England, collecting, drying, and preserving rare plants to put into a book that he hoped to sell to subscribers. He couldn't get enough people interested in that, though, so soon he made his next turn, his star turn, as it were, into acting. He became a player at two of London's most esteemed theaters, the Haymarket and Covent Garden. But he was if reports are to be believed, a terrible performer. Isaac Disraeli said he was so talentless on the stage that he was unable to convincingly convey even his own profession when he played an apothecary in Romeo and Juliet. But if reports are to be believed is an important caveat, because what is clear is that John Hill didn't make a lot of friends in the theater. A couple of years after he quit, or was forced out, of acting, he wrote a book about how to do properly what he evidently had not, entitled The Actor, a treatise on the art of playing, interspersed with theatrical anecdotes, critical remarks on plays, and occasional observations on audiences. The anecdotes, critical remarks, and occasional observations were all acid insults slung at those he had worked with and for. I get the impression that Hill's attacks were not the opening volley, that he was responding to things some of his enemies had already been saying about him, but if the book wasn't the thing that opened the can of worms, it definitely shot the lid clear through to the ceiling. For months, various actors, directors, playwrights, and theatrical managers harangued Hill in print, with the actor and manager David Garrick giving the most memorable line about him in an epigram, which read, For physics and farces, his equal their scarces. His farces are physic, his physic a farces. Hill went on to write at least three plays and one opera, none of which appears to have ever been produced. Indeed, the managers of the day derided them as mediocre or worse, but I'll tell you, I've read the libretto to his opera, Orpheus, and it's pretty good. But... When Hill published it, he opened the quarto with two pages of tongue-lashing against John Rich, the manager of Covent Garden, whom he accused of all kinds of professional malpractice. It seems reasonable enough to assume that, for John Rich, it didn't really matter whether Hill could write. And the same thing might be true of his acting. Perhaps he did a perfectly swell job on the stage, but was so impossible in back that it didn't matter. John Hill engaged in these sorts of spats with alarming frequency. After his brief theatrical career, he returned to medicine and received his doctorate in absentia from St. Andrews. He took up work as an army surgeon for a while while he worked on his first real solid achievement, an English translation of Treatise on Gems by Aristotle's star pupil Theophrastus. It was, apparently, a very good translation. Moreover, Hill annotated the whole work with his own notes and knowledge of mineralogy, which it turns out was extensive. Nobody, to this day, can say where he learned the subject. Treatise on Gems caught the attention of a lot of Britain's intelligentsia, particularly Martin Folkes, the president of the Royal Society. With Folk's support and good word behind him, John Hill gave up his apothecary and his surgery and began writing full-time. And, as already mentioned, on any and all subjects imaginable. He had a daily column in the London Advertiser, which he wrote under the byline The Inspector. It was sort of the prototype of the modern editorial column, with Hill taking on any subject that flitted across his transom, from mundane daily life to grand philosophical questions and everything in between. The Inspector was immensely popular with readers, and equally as unpopular with writers. The Inspector regularly took pot shots at at everything and everyone, including a number of heavy-hitting authors of the era. In 1752, he got into a public war of letters with Henry Fielding, the novelist behind the history of Tom Jones, and soon, nearly every writer in England was drawn into the fray, including Samuel Johnson, who told King George himself that Hill was a liar, and Christopher Smart, who wrote an entire epic poem to satirize him, which was entitled, and this is so very good, The (laughs) Hilliad. Uh, never, never let it be said that the 18th century didn't have its share of comedy. In the Heliad, again, very good, Smart cast Hill as an apothecary named Hilarios, also quite good, who is transformed into the Inspector by a sibyl. after which he becomes, quote, the universal butt of all mankind. The poem ends with a poetic ode to the immortality of the great artists of history. While love shall live, and rapture shall rejoice, fed by the notes of Handel, Aim, and Boyce. While with joint force, or humor's droll domain, Cervantes, Fielding, Lucian, Swift, shall reign. While thinking figures, from the canvas start, and Hogarth is the garrick of his art. So long, in flat stupidity's extreme, shall hill the arch dunce remain or every dunce supreme that emphasis it's not mine he caps locked arch dunce hill shot back with his own epic satire the smartiad very not as good but he takes the smartiad to a really dark place he praises smart and says everyone talks about what a wonderful writer he is how nice for him but he ends with a picture of smart's fate Right on, unenvied bard, struggle to rise, and lift thy spreading honours to the skies. A while, indeed, the gaudy influence streams; a while the short-lived bright effulgence gleams. But soon shall all this transient blaze retire. Thou sink in gloom, and dreadfully expire. Observe thy sentence, and attentive here. The doom, perhaps, is not the doom you fear. No pompous marble shall preserve thy name, no flattering stone shall tell imagined fame, but death victorious shall in triumph ride, trampling the poor remains of envy, scorn, and pride. In addition to casting Smart into annihilated anonymity, Hill also does a little bit to praise himself. Particularly, he draws a comparison, saying that he, unlike Smart, will soon be a fellow of the Royal Society. And Hill had every reason to think so. He had published two papers in the Society's journal, Philosophical Transactions. He'd introduced Linnaean taxonomy to the English-speaking world. He'd made important observations on the germination of grain. He had discovered the role bees play in pollination and helped invent the compound microscope. He should have been a shoe-in with the Royal Society. But when he submitted his name for consideration to the order, he couldn't get three votes in the whole room. Members of the Royal Society pointed to his apothecary days and his books on herbal remedies, which they called quackery. They pointed to his education, if you can call what John Hill had an education. John Hawkins, Samuel Johnson's biographer, wrote, He had received no academical education, but his ambition, prompting him to be a graduate, he obtained from one of those universities which would scarcely refuse a degree to an apothecary's horse, a diploma for that of a doctor of physic. Still, the main problem with Hill's election to the Society seems to have been the same thing that inhibited his theatrical and his literary careers. Everybody just fucking hated the guy. In his columns and books, he had made snide comments about so many scientists, indeed so many scientific disciplines, that not even his old friend and benefactor, the Society's president, Martin Foulkes, was willing to stand up for him. And as you can guess by the Smartiad and the foreword to his opera, John Hill took the disappointment with grace and maturity. Okay, so what he actually did was he started writing angry letters. He denied that he had ever wanted to join the Society, said, in fact, that he thought the Society was a joke. And to prove it, he published a book entitled A Review of the Works of the Royal Society of London, where he tore apart every last stupid paper they had ever published. And boy, there were a lot of them. Hill's broadside of the Royal Society runs nearly 300 pages long. It includes a paper entitled... A Way to Kill Rattlesnakes, which asks that you first capture and restrain the animal, then put a bunch of wild pennyroyal on the end of a stick and shove it in the snake's face. Keep it under the nose for half an hour. The snake will try to avoid it, the author says, so you really have to keep it on him. And, quote, he will be killed by the mere scent of the herb. Hill does a great job pointing out the absurdities of this advice. It takes half an hour to work, if indeed it works and you have to already have trapped and somehow immobilized the rattlesnake then why bother hill relates it to an inventor creating a poison paper for killing fleas which has to be applied manually to the nose quoting hill the very first old woman he sold a paper to unluckily asked him whether when she had got the flea if she should crack it under her nail it would not be as well the poor fellow could not but answer that that way would do too and was so thunderstruck with the objection that he never sold another such is the misfortune of a man's applying himself to old women and being upon the spot and in the way of having impertinent questions asked him had he lived in new england or virginia and only communicated his discovery to a royal society who of all its members would have thought of such a trifling objection to so useful a proposal He similarly tears apart a method for farming oysters, which begins, Find out a proper place for oysters to live in, throw in three or four hundred live ones, and after twenty or thirty years there will be a vast increase of them. What an amazing discovery, writes Hill. We shall venture to give it a character, which is very cautiously to be bestowed on the generality of papers in the works of these authors, which is that it is certainly a truth. He goes on and on, criticizing papers about mermen, as well as regular men who can't be drowned no matter how long they're held underwater, the medical properties of unicorn horns, a theory that birds migrate to the moon, hey, that sounds familiar, a miraculous method for shrinking fish via the cunning art of malnourishment, and if that weren't spectacularly obvious enough for you, Hill also takes up a paper entitled Incontestable Proofs of a Strange and Surprising Fact namely that fish will live in water (laughs) about which he writes the royal society has ever been fond of producing proofs of things that nobody ever doubted as to such as the world has wanted certainty in they have very prudently chosen to be silent They are a prudent body, and as they do not love disputes, in which it is possible they may be proved to be in the wrong, they choose to advance nothing till they are very sure all the world will agree with them in it. It is a truly mic-dropping book all the way around, and it caused no little embarrassment to the Royal Society, particularly its president and Hill's former friend, Martin Folkes, to whom the book is caustically dedicated. He sarcastically thanks folks for, quote, "'The manner in which you represented me to a noble friend, "'while to myself you made me much more than I deserved. "'The ease with which you excused yourself of this, "'the unconcern with which you forgot "'you had excused yourself, "'and the solemnity with which, "'in the face of Almighty God, "'you excused yourself again. "'Your manner of mentioning me in my absence, "'while politeness was out of countenance, "'at your complacence to me when present.' They are incidents that cannot but inform me in the most sensible manner of your true character, and that cannot but testify to the world that you are as full of honor as of philosophy, as worthy to be a friend as to be a president of a royal society. We will never learn to subtweet as brutally as they managed in the 18th century. We have forgotten the old ways. Anyway, the point is that John Hill tore the Royal Society a new one and showed that their ranks were stuffed with dupes, fools, and cons. But that wasn't the end of it. Seeing how much crap got through into the pages of the Society's journal, he decided to write a crap paper of his own and see if they would buy it. He wrote it under a pseudonym, Abraham Johnson, with the title Lucina Sine Concubitu, A letter humbly addressed to the Royal Society in which is proved by most incontestable evidence drawn from reason and practice that a woman may conceive and be brought to bed without any commerce with man. Hill lays it on thick right from the jump, writing, Gentlemen, The great encouragement you show to all learned investigations of nature, witness those excellent treatises published every year in your philosophical transactions, laying it on a bit thick there, Hill, emboldens me to lay before you a discovery which, I believe, is entirely new, and which I am sure will equal anything that has been offered to the world since philosophy has been a science." Abraham Johnson blows a lot more smoke up the society's ass before explaining that he is a humble country doctor who knows a couple things about breeding women, wink-wink, and so on and so forth, but, quote, "...not to trouble you with more of my private history than is necessary. As I was sitting alone one afternoon, smoking my pipe, I received a message from a neighboring gentleman informing me that his daughter was dangerously ill and desiring my immediate attendance." When I was arrived, and had examined the young lady concerning her complaints, I was surprised to find in her all the symptoms of pregnancy. But as I know very well how tenderly ladies value their reputations, even after they have lost them, I withdrew the father aside into a separate room for the sake of privacy, and there, with great concern, told him what my office obliged me to declare. Yes, that's right, he told the dad to go to a different room, so that he could talk to him about his daughter's pregnancy. But what sort of HIPAA agreement do you expect from a class of doctors who thought the problem with bloodletting was that they weren't removing enough? The rest of the scene went about as you'd expect. Father flew into a blind rage, his daughter fainted in true British fashion, and her mother, outraged by the impropriety of the suggestion, threw the good Dr. Johnson out on the street. The next morning, he was called back when the young woman went into labor and, quote again, about five in the afternoon, I conducted into the world the little malicious witness whose evidence was so fatal to the young lady's character and so necessary to the vindication of mine. Even with a baby in hand, the new mother continued to protest her innocence with a kind of urgency that shook Hill's country doctor. When he returned home, he found himself thinking and reading about whether she could have been telling the truth. The important context here is that at the time, there was an especially thick disclarity over where babies came from. That debate was, at the moment, taking place on two fronts. Whether the male or the female carried the critical material for generating new life and whether the new life was generated there in the moment or if it had been formed by God at the beginning of creation. Microscopists, specifically Antony von Leeuwenhoek, had heroically managed to pull out, splooge on their spouses' tummies, and take a closer look at the mess in which they saw teeming streams of little creatures that they called animalcules. But they also saw similar animalcules pretty much everywhere else they trained their microscopes. On food, on skin, in mud, in water, even pulled out of the very air. Obviously, spermatozoa are very different creatures than bacteria and amoebas and other microscopic life. But at this point, basically only one person had bothered to think about that and tried to organize a taxonomy for the animalcules. The Royal Society had largely ignored that guy because his name was John Hill. He coined a lot of the terms used for simple organisms, like paramecium. So as far as a lot of people were concerned, it was plausible that God had at the very beginning of time released all the little souls of man into the air where they flitted about invisibly until they were ingested or inhaled by a suitable father whose testicles nourished the germ to its first phase of maturity, at which point it could be deposited sexually into the loamy womb of its mother. If this be the whole mystery of generation, the paper continues, I began to question why might not the fetus be as completely hatched in the seminal vessels of the woman as when it passes through the organs of both sexes? Why should the animalculum go such a tedious progress, make such a roundabout tour, when there is so much nearer a road, so much shorter a cut into daylight? Then Hill, in the person of Abraham Johnson, of course, forwarded a theory, more or less fully formed. Going by the same long-standing superstition that had potentially encouraged the story of Magdalene and Emmanuel, he posited that the animalcules of new human life were carried on the Zephyr, the West Wind, as Virgil, Pliny, and, you best believe it, fucking Aristotle, had seemingly suggested. To test this hypothesis, he devised an experiment— After much exercise of my invention, I contrived a wonderful cylindrical catatropical rotundo concavo convex machine, which, being hermetically sealed at one end and electrified according to the nicest laws of electricity, I erected it in a convenient attitude to the west as a kind of trap to intercept the floating animalcula in their prolific quarter of the heavens." The event answered my expectation, and when I had caught a sufficient number of these small, original, unexpanded minims of existence, I spread them out carefully like silkworm eggs upon white paper, and then, applying my best microscope, plainly discerned them to be little men and women, exact in all their limbs and liniments, and ready to offer themselves little candidates for life whenever they should happen to be imbibed with air or nutriment and conveyed down into the vessels of generation. I know, Hill seems to be flying a little close to the sun here, right? I mean, between the name of his invention and the revelation of actually seeing fully formed microscopic men and women within his animalcules, he's pushing the prank perilously close to the cliff. Did he really think the Royal Society was this gullible? It is truly difficult to say. Absurdly jargony inventions were sort of the order of the day, and if you go looking through the writings of the spermists and preformationists who seriously posited the ideas Hill was lampooning here, you'll find plenty of credulous drawings of tiny people folded inside the heads of sperm. Maybe he really did believe they'd buy it. And maybe they would. But Hill might have been working under a different and just as damning assumption, that the editors at Philosophical Transactions were smart enough to recognize his hokum, but too lazy or hungry for sensationalism to care. Which again, he could have been right. Either way, as you have probably already guessed, the experiment wasn't over. Abraham Johnson said that he had proved the first part of his hypothesis, that human animalcules were carried on the west wind. But that was practically a given to many natural philosophers of the day. The real question was whether these animalcules could be matured without intercourse. And that would be a much harder thing to prove. How to make the experiment, Abraham wonders in his letter. Very hard to know when a woman has imbibed the necessary seed, and harder still to restrain her from all commerce with man till the experiment had time to take effect. If I made choice of a married woman, then the difficulties were innumerable. Or, if I made choice of a maiden, virginity has, in all ages, been esteemed a very brittle wear. Sometimes I thought of taking a wife, over whom I could usurp an absolute authority and lock her up till the day of her labor. But, fearing she might grow desperate when she should find out I only married her to try an experiment upon her, and at the same time grievously mistrusting the continence of my own affection after I had accomplished my ends, I dismissed that project and resolved, after much perplexity, to hazard all upon a chambermaid. He convinced the maid that she was sick, and gave her a dose of medicine to drink, which, unbeknownst to her, was seeded with the tiny little people bits he'd collected on the wind— After which, the paper again continues, and I know I'm quoting a lot here, but it really is a great read, isn't it? Who says John Hill couldn't write? Aside from Samuel Johnson, Christopher Smart, every actor, playwright, and theater manager of the era, and Charles Dickens. Anyway, I discarded my footman and suffered no male creature in human shape to approach my doors. Nay, so great was my caution to have my stratagem succeed that I hardly permitted a dog of the masculine gender to enter my house. In about six months, it was very visible the medicine had taken effect. As I was sitting alone one morning in my study, ruminating on this great event, the girl came to me with tears in her eyes, and having obtained my leave to ask a question, entreated me earnestly to tell her if it was possible to breed after three years. Though I guessed the drift of her question, yet affecting an air of ignorance and putting on a grave physician's aspect, I ordered her to be more explicit whereupon she proceeded with frequent breaks of crying to tell me how much she was astonished at some symptoms that heaven above knew what was the matter with her but she verily believed herself a breeding and yet could take the bible oath she had not been 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 touched by a man for these three years Next, as if testing another aspect of the journal's credibility, he allows his invented handmaid to tell in brief the story of her dalliance with a country parson, like he's weighing whether a little light erotica will damage or bolster the paper's publishability. Hill goes on to cite a number of mythological and pseudo-historical events that might further prove what he says he has already very much proven, but if that's not enough, he says, another experiment could be performed. If all of England could be convinced to abstain from sexual congress for just a year, he could prove to the whole world the strength of his discovery. And he spends some time digging into the advantages of this discovery. Women will no longer have to fear for their reputations, nor, in the same spirit, their chastity. Venereal disease could be eliminated. And, of course, one other great consequence would be, quote, "...the utter abolition of matrimony." which has been complained of by all the polite world as a nuisance grievance and intolerable inconsistent with all the articles of modern pleasure and destructive of that freedom which of right belongs to gentlemen but principally and earnestly the doctor concludes i address myself to you gentlemen of the royal society who shine in the dignity of frs Uh, That's the suffix granted to fellows of the Royal Society. And I hope you will recommend this treatise to the world with all the warmth and zeal that becomes the promoters of useful knowledge, the patrons of learning, the judges of science, and the investigators of truth. And did they do as he hoped and publish this paper? I mean, yeah, how else would I be reading it to you? Between the hoax letter and his review of the journal's other material, John Hill assured that he would never, in a million years, be welcomed into the society's ranks, which he called a victory, writing to a French correspondent who mistook him for a member, You are to know that I have the honor not to be a member of the Royal Society of London. What's more impressive, however, is that as much as the scientific establishment of the city hated him, they had to admit that he had made his point, that the Royal Society and its journal, Philosophical Transactions, were too credulous, too sensational, too untrustworthy, and downright gullible, and eventually they undertook reforms to improve this because of him. As Isaac Disraeli, who went to great lengths to describe him as a buffoon and a charlatan, eventually admitted, Yet Sir John Hill, this despised man, After all, the fertile absurdities of his literary life performed more for the improvement of the philosophical transactions than any other contemporary. Everybody in 18th century England may have hated John Hill. From my perch here in the 21st century, it's hard not to love him.
2: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
3: There's this episode of House. Oh, really? This is the kind of lightweight media criticism I usually say for the cold open. Huh. Oh well. So there's this episode of House, where a woman comes into the clinic complaining of a headache, and is seen by House himself. For reasons that aren't even important to the episode, let alone important to this episode, House is trying to be nice. Which, if you've never watched House, him not being nice is sort of the bit. Hi, I'm Greg.
0: Hi, I'm Whitney.
1: Hi, Whitney gonna help you.
0: I have a terrible headache.
1: Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I'll get you fixed up. Is there anything else you need? A bottle of Water, coffee,
0: minty No, but that's so nice. Usually
1: the clinic doctors are kind of rushed. <laughs> if you can't be nice, why be a doctor?
3: As far as brain-numbing television goes, by the way, you could do worse. You've got a lot of great actors, especially Hugh Laurie, of course, who's basically handed a license to choose scenery, and I'm a sucker for that, but I digress. Woman comes in with a headache, and go. So where do you feel the pain?
0: In the back of my head here.
1: Uh-huh, it's a sign. I'll be down by your third trimester.
0: Uh, I'm not in school.
1: Neither is your fetus.
0: Oh, God.
1: You didn't know you were pregnant?
0: How do you, you know that just from the headache?
1: How do I know? I missed my period. I got fat. Threw up. Oh, no, wait. That's how you know. What? I know because of the tight shirt stretched over the swollen boobs, the salt craving you poured into the clinic, the motion sickness patch that doesn't do anything for the kind of sickness that you feel in the morning.
0: I'm a virgin. So is my fiancé. I believe him. Aren't there other ways I could get pregnant? Like... Sitting on a toilet seat?
1: Absolutely. There would need to be a guy sitting between you and the toilet seat, but yes,
3: absolutely. I was doing so well. Alright, so we've got a potential virgin birth? Sounds like a medical mystery worthy of our very much just Sherlock Holmes with an MD hero, right? Right. Well, no, because this isn't the main plot of the episode. It's not even a B-plot, actually. It's essentially interstitial. But a couple of scenes later, the woman barges back into the clinic with her fiancé and tries to get House to explain how she could have become pregnant without cheating on him. Which gets us to this exchange. Dr.
0: House? This is my fiancé, Jeff. She says you told her you can get pregnant from sitting on a toilet seat.
1: I said those words, but with particular inflection. I knew it wasn't true. Well,
0: is there any other way? Isn't it possible?
1: There was a reported case of a Civil War soldier who was shot in the testicles and the musket ball carried the non-musket ball into the uterus of a woman working in a neighboring field. Nine months later, a miracle child was born. Also, maybe she cheated on you.
3: That medical report of the bullet passing through a soldier's scrotum on its way to its final destination within the uterus of a virgin teen who then falls pregnant has followed a course nearly as long and unlikely as the bullet. Over the last century and a half, it has been repeated with various degrees of credulity in newspapers, magazines, books, and medical journals, in addition to pot-boiler network television medical procedurals. In its most prestigious incarnations, it was recounted in the New York State Journal of Medicine and The Lancet. And in both of those events, it is stated with solemn, earnest seriousness. But it is, of course, a hoax, which has been tracked back to an 1874 article in the American Medical Weekly, written by Dr. Legrand Capers. That name might be the biggest hint that everyone is being played here, and indeed, the byline is the thing that gave the game away, but not by the means you might expect. Legrand Capers, or The Big Pranks, was in fact an actual person, an actual doctor, and indeed a Confederate surgeon who treated soldiers at the Battle of Raymond near Vicksburg on May 12th, 1863. Caper's version of events, Le Abridged, reads as follows. About 3 o'clock p.m., when the battle was raging most furiously, The above-mentioned lady and her two daughters, filled with interest and enthusiasm, stood bravely in front of their homestead, ready and eager to minister to their wounded countrymen. In the same moment, a piercing scream from the house reached my ear. I was soon by the side of the young man, and upon examination found a compound fracture with extensive communition of the left tibia. The ball, having ricocheted from these parts and, in its onward flight, passed through the scrotum, carrying away the left testicle. Scarcely had I finished dressing the wounds of this poor fellow when the estimable matron came running to me in the greatest distress, begging me to go to one of her daughters. Hastening to the house, I found that the eldest of the young daughters had indeed received a most serious wound. A mini-ball had penetrated the left abdominal parietes and was lost in the abdominal cavity, leaving a ragged wound behind just 278 days from the date of the receipt of the wound by the mini ball i delivered the same young lady of a fine boy weighing eight pounds although i found the hymen intact in my examination before delivery i gave no credence to the earnest and oft repeated assertions of the young lady of her innocence and virgin purity About three weeks from the date of this remarkable birth, I was called to see the child, the grandmother insisting there was something wrong about the genitals. Examination revealed an enlarged, swollen, sensitive scrotum containing on the right side a hard, roughened substance evidently foreign. I decided upon operating for its removal at once, and in so doing extracted from the scrotum a mini-ball, mashed and battered as if it had met in its flight some hard, unyielding substance. The ball I took from the scrotum of the babe was the identical one which, on the 12th of May, shattered the tibia of my young friend and, in its mutilated condition, plunged through his testicle, carrying with it particles of semen and spermatozoa into the abdomen of the young lady, then through her left ovary and into the uterus, in this manner impregnating her. There can be no other solution of the phenomenon." These convictions, I expressed to the family and, at their solicitations, visited my young soldier friend, laying the case before him in its proper light. At first, most naturally, he appeared skeptical, but concluded to visit the young mother. Whether convinced or not, he soon married her, ere the little boy had attained his fourth month. As a matter of additional interest, I may mention having received a letter during the past year reporting a happy married state and three children but neither resembling to the same marked degree as the first, our hero, Potter Familius. Aside from the sheer implausibility of the facts of the story, there are a couple of giveaways that we're looking at a hoax here. The soldier marrying the girl is too cute by half, and Capers probably didn't have to lodge the bullet in the scrotum of the newborn, right? Capers' motive for this caper, is evident in the opening lines of his report, which read, How common it is nowadays, and how natural, too, for men to tell wonderful stories about the war, their desperate charges, hairbreadth escapes, numbers who have fallen victims to their feats of personal valor, etc., etc. Then every surgeon has performed any number of wonderful operations before unheard of in the annals of surgery. "'Until the present moment, I have refrained from bringing before the public, and more particularly the profession, any of my daring exploits or remarkable surgical procedures. Doubtless, many will pronounce the facts to be presently related as unusual or impossible. To such, I need only say, if not, why not?' Capers, vexed by the post-war world's affinity for tall tales of heroism and medical daring do, invented his story to illustrate his frustration.' It's almost a sure thing, but the way it became an actual sure thing, a proven fiction, goes back to LeGrand Capers' name. It was a good one, you see. Capers was an esteemed doctor and later a professor of medicine in New Orleans. Annoyed as he was by all the boasting and clever as he must have felt for concocting his satire, he didn't actually want to put his reputation on the line for a joke. So, when he submitted his letter to American Medical Weekly, he did so anonymously. Unluckily for capers, the editor of American Medical Weekly, Edwin Samuel Gaylord, recognized it for the farce that it was. Even more unluckily, he also recognized Capers' handwriting. When LeGrand Capers opened up his copy of American Medical Weekly, he might have been initially pleased to see his article under the title Attention Gynecologists! Notes from the Diary of a Field and Hospital Surgeon C.S.A. Inside. But he was absolutely mortified to find his name attached to it. He immediately wrote Gaylord, begging him to run a disclaimer, which Gaylord did, with the full explanation reading, The joke is that the doctor reported the case without any signature, but as the editor is indisposed to be made the victim of canards and recognized the writing sent, he was unwilling to deprive the author of the contemplated fun and allowed him to enjoy even more of this than was anticipated. Which is how the otherwise well-regarded Dr. Big Pranks ended up going down in history with a legacy very much befitting his name. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. We receive most of the financial support we need to make this show and feed ourselves via patrons, who pay to get ad-free and early access to new episodes along with monthly bonus content. If you would like to be one of those patrons, you can head over to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up. Otherwise, do me a favor and tell somebody about the show. Word of mouth is the primary and practically the only way that new people discover the constant, so you can do a favor both for me and a friend by setting up a meet cute for us. Thanks. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, Home to a number of wild baby-related stories and hoaxes, which I'm thinking of returning to in the near future, so hold on to your butts. This has been The Constant. Strike up the banners, beat the drum. Magdalene's husband, the lord of Aguim... Agamere... It's not a real place. It's not my fault I can't pronounce it. It's fucking made up.